0: If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of scripture. Just a reminder, we're in 1 Corinthians 10 and Paul is writing to the Corinthians to avoid Israel's mistakes um, as a warning. 1 Corinthians 10, we're gonna start in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices shares in the altar? What do I mean then? that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Here in the reading of God's word, let's pray again
1: before we look at this um, text together. Lord, we do ask that you give us ears to hear your truth, and to grant me the ability to communicate it by the power of your Spirit, for the glory of the name of Christ. Amen. As we come to this section, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, we are given as clear a command as you're going to find anywhere in the New Testament on the matter of idolatry, and that is to flee from it, to, to shun, to bolt, escape, run away from it. Because the sin of idolatry um, has always been um, the menace of mankind and a great stumbling block for those who profess faith in the one true and only God. Be it Old Covenant Israel or the New Covenant Church of Jesus Christ, God's people still struggle with it. It's forbidden in the first two of the Ten Commandments. We read in Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol of anything in heaven above or earth below or sea beneath the earth. You shall not bow down and worship them. Idolatry is renounced um, in the foremost and greatest commandment That is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and and mind. Okay, which tells us, if the duty commanded is the most important, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, then the practice of idolatry is the most wicked. If the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, uh, the practice of idolatry is the most wicked of sins. In Romans chapter 1, Paul um, defines for us the fundamental nature of idolatry summarized in verse 25 of Romans 1, and that is the fact that man has rejected the creator and worshipped the creature exchanging, we read, the truth of God for a a lie. Now, an idol, um, in the narrow sense, beloved, refers to an image made to represent false deities. That's, that's typically how we think of idols. But an idol... In the broad sense, refers to anything that takes place of God in our lives. That is giving anything the place, um, the confidence, the devotion, the service, the affection, uh, and love that is due to God alone. That's idolatry in a broad sense. It could be a person, a thing. Success, career, pleasure, all those things can be raised to idol status. It could be a hobby. Um, The media for many um, is indeed an idol because it, the media, um, subtly uh, um, conforms us to the world as we take it in, as we digest it, as we buy into it. We're conformed to it and not to Christ. I know a guy whose democratic liberal politics are an idol. Now, I don't know his heart, but what I do know is that he professes to be a Christian and he views the gospel through the lens of his politics. That's idolatry. You ought to view politics through the lens of the gospel. The whole council of God. I, I know a guy who said, "If Jesus were uh, living today on the earth, that is, um, in a human body and carrying out his ministry um, in America, he'd be a liberal." No, you're a fool. <laughs> okay. Well, he'd be a conservative then. No, you're a fool. In Jesus' day, who were the liberals? The Sadducees. Who were the conservatives? The Pharisees, he rebuked them both. (laughs) Children can be exalted to the status of an idol when when parents dote over and revere them. Um, An article, I believe it was um, in the Gospel Coalition, um, came with a question, and it's this. Do Christian parents flirt With the idol of safety. Okay, that is, does our craving to see our children excel arise out of faithfulness or out of idolatry? Charles Spurgeon once said, If Christians desire to grow thorns with which to stuff their sleepless pillows, let them dote on their children. we've seen the effect of doting over children all throughout the Old Testament, amen? Um, consider, another form of idolatry, um, consider tree-hugging um, earth-worshippers consumed with global warming fear, not realizing the primary cause of global warming is the Creator Himself. Newsflash. <laughs> Who will destroy this present earth with heat? Look at it. Second Peter chapter three and verse seven. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for what? Fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. You feel glo- fear global warming, you better start fearing God <coughs> and repent and come under the authority of his son, Jesus Christ, Who bore the heat of God's wrath on the cross for sinners? And he will come like a thief in the night. The earth and its works will be burned up. Bringing a great new book by G.K. Beale, he said this listen carefully, I do not have this written down. Quote, the fact that the Bible says that the earth must be destroyed at the end of time is, I think, related to idolatry. The ultimate idol must be destroyed. And there must be a new heavens and a new earth untainted by the sin of Adam and Eve and their progeny, who were ultimately idol worshipers. The ultimate thing in which people take security some aspect of the world must be destroyed. If you're fretting over global warming, which is a real thing, remember, it's a biblical thing. You need to grow up out of it. Idolatry has always been a snare for those who profess to follow the one true and living God. We saw in our study last Lord's Day, numerous incidents of old covenant Israel recorded right here in chapter 10. And we were reminded from the text itself, these things are written down for our Instruction written down as examples to us. Why? Because it's no less of a problem for us. Witness, throughout the house of the load this morning. <laughs> as serious as the word is, I have to remind you that let us be serious about serious things and not too Serious about non-serious things. Amen. Amen. This is a serious matter. The last thing the Apostle John wrote in his first epistle at the end of chapter 5, 1 John, we read these words. Little children, keep yourself yourselves from idols. The Apostle Paul warns the church in Ephesus as well as the church in Colossae. Children, keep from covetousness which is idolatry to covet anybody not guilty stand up <laughs> so we should not say i thank you god that i have no idols like the Pharisee who prayed, Lord, thank you that I'm not like other men, like this tax collector over here. Lord, thank you, I'm not a idolater like these other Christians here. Right? Instead, let us say, Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Show me if there's any offensive way within me. That's the proper prayer to have for as a Christian. You know, whatever dominates your mind, whatever captivates the core of our being, if it's not the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it's a created thing, and therefore, it is an idol. Where your treasure is, Jesus said, there your heart will be also. Now, in 1 Corinthians... Okay, from chapter 8 through chapter 10 is dealing with one main topic. We're in the middle of it. We're coming towards the end of it at any rate. We'll we'll conclude next week. But the, the issue at hand is meat sacrificed to idols. That's the context. So that introduction leads into where we're at here. Paul is dealing with people of the church of Corinth and meat being sacrificed to idols. Now, the apostle Paul had come to Corinth, a dark, pagan, wicked place. He preached Jesus Christ and him crucified, and the church in Corinth was born. Called out as they were from the worship of false deities in pagan temples throughout Corinth and included in that kind of worship was drunken orgiastic activities, while at the same time attached to those pagan temples were banquet halls, and they held everything in these banquet halls from you know from weddings to birthday parties to trade guild meetings and so on so um, it really in, in, in one fashion was to them what the modern restaurant is to us going out to eat in the 1st century meant going to these banquet halls that were attached to pagan temples but the meat that you would eat would have been sacrificed to the deity representing that temple or the temple that represents that deity Apollo, you know, Hermes, Artemis whoever so Paul in chapter 8 Addressed those Christians who were further along in their sanctification, that is, those who had a strong conscience, who were flaunting their freedom, that is, if you look back at chapter 8 and verse 10, who were eating in idols' temples. Okay? And in doing so, they were wounding the consciences of weaker Christians. Those who weren't as biblically informed in their mind and hearts at this point. And these weaker Christians were perhaps feeling the sharpness of their own sins, having worshiped in idols' temples for years. So it was a sensitive issue To them, it was a painful issue for them, while it was a meaningless issue for those who were strong in conscience, realizing by way of a biblically informed mind, chapter 8, verse 4, notice, look, an idol has no real existence, and that there is but one true God. What is meat? Sacrifice to an they don't even exist. That was the argument. But the strong in conscience were causing the weak to stumble with the possibility of resorting to pagan practices in idolatrous temples if they were to see their stronger brother eating meat within that temple. Okay, so in chapter 9. Paul gives an illustration of how those who are strong, they have a biblically informed mind, um, how they ought to minister to the scruples of the weak. Chapter 9 and verse 22. To the weak I became weak. His example was that love for the brethren limits our liberty. You're free in Christ. But love for the brethren, with the fear of causing another to stumble, our liberty ought to be limited by love for them. That was his argument. So he also goes on to say look, it's not merely about stumbling the weak, it's also about thinking that you're much stronger than you are. And take heed. If you think you're strong, lest you what? Fall. So Paul went on from using himself as a good example to follow to the bad examples, plural, of old covenant Israel, that is instruction for us, so as not to follow their example. And he listed all kinds of idolatrous action, of the Israelites through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness where time after time their bodies were scattered throughout and they never entered in to the promised land. Look at verse 11, chapter 10. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction. So the application of that history To the Corinthians, as well as to us this morning, is that if you should find yourself involved in idolatry, practicing sexual immorality, grumbling against the Lord's messengers, testing the Lord, and craving those things that are outside of God's established limits, verse 12, those who think they stand, you better take heed. Do not presume, this is one of the lessons last time, do not presume upon the spiritual uh, advantages that have been given to you because Israel presumed we're part of the covenant community. And yet they fell under the justice of God in the desert today today. Hey, I'm part of the church life. I'm part of church life, you know. Um, um, I've been baptized. I I prayed a prayer to accept Jesus in, in 1999. You know, it's once saved, always saved, right? Look, grace that does not change a man is a grace that will not save a man. Grace saves and grace sanctifies So to presume as Israel did, hey, I'm part of the covenant community. I'll worship idols. I'll practice sexual immorality. Church of Corinth, take heed to their lives. Presuming you're just part of the church because you've been baptized. You think you're in? Don't presume. Because if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things... Have passed, behold, all things are new. Look, although I am definitely not what I should be, I have not arrived, amen? I am definitely not what I should be, and yet I am not what I would be or what I am without the grace of God, only by the grace of God. So he says to the Corinthians, don't be like the Israelites who presumed upon their spiritual blessings. Run this race with the finish line in view. Verse 13. Why? Because God is faithful. Okay? We're going back. We're covering a little ground because we want to stay in context to Paul's argument here. Okay? with regard to idolatry. So verse 13, God is faithful, who will not allow you, church at Corinth, who will not allow you, church, Pacific Hope, in San Diego, to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. The way of escape, friends, is Jesus himself. He is the way. He's the truth, he's the life, he's also the way of escape. So the temptation might be strong, The temptation might be crushing, but he is greater, enabling you to endure the temptation. That's the instruction. The temptation to what? To bow down to idols like Israel, to grumble against God, to blame God, to point my finger at God, to shake my fist at God like Israel did. To transgress the limitations of my life, which are for my own protection and his glory. Those examples. Because He will provide a way out. He will enable you. You think of submarines, submarines that go thousands of feet beneath the surface with thousands of pounds of pressure on every square inch of that submarine. The thing that keeps that thing from being crushed like an aluminum can is an enabling power A greater pressure, a saving pressure on the inside of the submarine. You see what I'm saying? Christ is within us. Pressure on the inside of a sub overcomes pressure on the outside of the sub. Pressure or life within us provides the power and the way of escape to the pressure on the outside. That's the idea. So it is Christ in, who is in you, who is greater. He is our victory. It's not my willpower that's greater. Just let me pull up my bootstraps. That's not great. You'll fail. It's Christ in me. It's not your willpower. It's not my positive thinking. It's not my 12-stepping. <laughs> it's Christ. He's the way of escape. Greater is he than it is in me, than he who is in the in the world, so we run to him, not away from him. See, our problem is, sometimes we don't want to see him in the midst of the situation, in the midst of temptation. We don't want to see him, so we succumb to the pressure. Anybody besides me, right? Come on. Therefore, after all of that, Paul says, verse 14, my beloved, flee. From idolatry. Notice that term of endearment. These Corinthians, I would have been pulling my hair out with these people. I don't know if Paul had any (laughs) after this bunch, but he says, Beloved, flee. Now, earlier in chapter six, he said, Flee from something. What was that? Flee sexual immorality because some of them were participating in sexual immorality with prostitutes in the pagan temples of Corinth. He said, flee from sexual immorality. Here he says, flee from idolatry. You Remember back in chapter 8, it's verse 4, we read these words. We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. Okay? Do you remember when we were there, um, I said... That is not all he has to say in the matter, beloved. Remember that? And here we are. Okay, and what Paul says now is like, look, all those, although the, the, those idols mean nothing in and of themselves, that does not mean you can have idols just because they're meaning less. And then he'll continue on in the argument here just momentarily. So you can file that we'll get to it. And then Paul proceeds um, to give this, this, this fascinating argument regarding the Lord's Supper and um, Old Testament worship. Okay, so look, verse 15. I speak to wise men. You judge what I say. Let me pause for a moment. And, and we're not sure, but Paul could be using sarcasm here again you remember the dripping sarcasm in chapter 4? That the Corinthians thought themselves to be oh so wise. He goes, oh, you, you've, you've arrived, Corinthians. You're so wise. You know, is you know, an apostle suffering for the gospel? You know, you, you've are, you're already there. Oh, if we could only partake with you. Remember that? He could be using sarcasm here. I speak to you as wise, but... Perhaps he's being tactful in wanting to draw them in in order to teach them about the supreme loyalty that is due to Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So it doesn't really matter which. But he may be wanting to affirm them. Saying this, look, you guys are wise, so follow me here. You have wisdom, Follow what I'm saying. I want you to discern something, Corinth, verse 16. Now think about this, he says. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Answer, yes, of course it is. Yes. Okay, what what do we have here this morning? Koinonia. We're going to participate at the Lord's table. What do we have in that? Koinonia. We have fellowship, a partnership, a participation in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. As believers, we participate in being blood-bought people of Christ. We have koinonia, fellowship. Now, think about the Passover meal, the Last Supper. Jesus in the upper room with his 11 disciples, all right? Judas had been ordered out. When the last supper took place, there's no mention in the account of a sacrificial lamb that night, amen? Why is that? Because the lamb of God was reclining at the head of the table, and the lamb of God, bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup of blessing. Now the cup of blessing was the third of four cups that were partaken of during the Passover meal. So they would have four cups of wine throughout that night. The third is what is referred to as the cup of blessing. And this is believed by most exegetes to be when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, saying, this is the new covenant in my my blood. The cup of blessing. Chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, verse 25, we read these words and we'll hear them in about a half an hour. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, the cup of blessing, which he blessed, is a reference to what we refer to now as the Lord's Supper. Now, there is no recording of Jesus being with his disciples in the upper room on that last night of them partaking of the fourth cup. They take the third cup, and then they walk out into the night. There's no recording of a fourth cup called the cup of acceptance. Because Jesus would have to drink that one alone. When he would go to the garden of Gethsemane, and he would accept there, in in the garden of of, uh, pressure, Gethsemane means oil press, he would be pressed, and there he would say, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as You will. And Jesus accepted the cup, the cup of acceptance, and he drank it in its fullness. The cup of God's wrath that he would bear on the cross. So it was in the Garden of Eden that the first Adam succumbed to temptation. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane the garden of pressure, the garden of pressing, that the second Adam, Jesus Christ, prevailed over temptation. Here he is. Verse 16b, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Answer, yes, of course it is. Now I want you to notice something here. Notice that the order is reversed. Every time in the New Testament, except for here, it's the body and then the blood. It's the bread and then the cup. And Paul probably wants to emphasize here the horizontal aspect of the body of Christ, right? Because if you think about it, the cup, in in some sense, has more of a vertical implication. That is... Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ we are reconciled to God, forgiven of our sins, whereas the bread represents the body of Christ, the horizontal aspect that we are one in Christ. Amen. And remember what's going on in Corinth. There were divisions within the body. Factions. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Peter. I am of Christ. And they were causing other brothers to stumble. So Paul here reverses it. And I think he wants to emphasize the division within the body and some Christians stumbling others. So, verse 16, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Verse 17, since there is one bread, we who are many are, we're one body, Corinth. Corinth, we're one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This guy's a master. So it takes your whole life to study, Paul. You're like, you you have got to be kidding me. I never saw that before. By divine inspiration. See, we share together, right, as the body of Christ one bread. Now, we're many pieces, amen? We're many pieces of the loaf. He's the head, we're the body. You know, you're going to take a cracker, you're going to partake of it. That represents the fact that, look, we're all part of his headship. He shed his blood for us. And regardless of where you come from, whether you're Jew, Gentile, bond, free, male, free male, female, we are all one in Christ, this is what he's driving home. This is one aspect anyway, of what he's driving home. Look, when we serve the Lord's Supper, we, 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 we do not have someone standing up front where you come up and I give you something. You ever see, you know, the, we, we do things not by accident here. So we don't have one man standing up dispensing Something to everyone who comes up. No, you take the plate that's handed to you by another and you pass it on to the next brother or sister. You partake and you pass it on. For we are all one in Christ. We are the body of Christ. So when you drink you are drinking, and when you eat, you are eating spiritually by faith. That's why we must prepare ourselves. That's why I go through what I do every, every month, which I'll go through again in just a little while. And what it says is that I am a beneficiary of what Jesus did on the cross. My brother is a beneficiary of what Jesus did on the cross. My sister is a beneficiary of what Jesus did on the cross. His body given in sacrifice on my behalf, but yet not a bone of him shall be broken. His body wasn't broken in that sense. The body, the bread is broken as we are part of he him who is the head. And his shed blood was shed for all of us. So we see this vert- vertical and horizontal aspect, which I think he's driving home here to make one great point. We are one in Christ. We commune together with him. And that's why I always say when we take the Lord's Supper, it is much more than mere commemoration. It is much more than mere symbolism. We are to commemorate, and it does symbolize something, but it's not merely a symbol. We are eating and drinking spiritually. And at the same time, we say, Look, I belong to you, you belong to me, for we are one in Christ. You were bought at a price, you are not your own. Corinth thought they were their own. We'll do as we please. We have freedom in Christ. We'll do what we will, how we want to. And on and on it goes, and you're causing your brother to stumble. And you don't even realize you're caught up in idolatry, you bunch of fools which you'll get to. I read a nice example this week with regard to communion being much more than mere symbolism. The writer said this, look, if you see a picture of somebody you love who has died, it isn't just a picture, is it? Say it's your mama. As soon as you look at the picture, the whole of that person is actualized in your mind. And suddenly, everything about that person is alive to you. Our mind is flooded with reality. They, the person, the deceased one, is now actualized in our mind. And and communion is the same thing, in essence. We partake of the bread, we, we partake of the cup. And it actualizes, by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the death of Christ. It makes vivid the reality of the living Lord who died for us. Amen? So it's not merely a symbol. It's not merely commemoration. And then together we partake, we have fellowship of the deepest bonds because we're in Christ. You know, I have a deeper bond with someone who's in Christ than I do with someone from my own bloodline who's not in Christ. Did you know that? Because that, un- that, that relationship is everlasting. Now, if you happen to have a loved one who's in Christ, well, then you have a double bond. But the deepest bond is this, the table, we are in Christ as one. This is my body broken. Broken. Now, wow, this is going to be a long sermon. Just prepare yourselves now. You're going to sit in front of the TV five hours this afternoon. You can deal with this. (laughs) Welcome back, Ed. Sociologists will tell you that one of the most racially divided places in our society is within prisons. I did 10 years in prison ministry. That's true, that's true, that's fact. But let me tell you this, when you go inside the walls of where the truly converted gather, the church, in the chapel, in the yard of that prison, you have black guys, White guys, Asian guys, Indian guys, Hispanic guys who are one in Christ and they know they're one in Christ. Unified as one. And I'm not talking about the phony, superficial social justice hypocrisy of our day, the fabricated political correctness of our day. No, it's real. It's real. Because in there, you don't cross those lines. the lines of race. In Christ, it's really interesting to see the protective head of God in that and even some of the respect that comes from unregenerate convicts. Interesting, at least from what I experience. So here the cup and the bread show us our being joined in fellowship together as the body of Christ by way of the shed blood of Christ. And by the way, this table that we'll partake of today is a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb, of which we will all participate in a new heaven and a new earth. And there, sin will be removed. So this is a foretaste of that. All of the things of the first creation will be things of the past. We just read that in 2 Peter, did we not? This present earth is being reserved for fire. And it will be no more. And it will bring in a new heaven and a new earth. And we who are one in Christ here, that meal foreshadows the marriage supper of the Lamb. So what we do in an imperfect sense this morning is a glimpse of that. We must remember this as we partake. So here's Paul's point. If a Christian truly enjoys fellowship with Christ through his body and blood, how in the world can you still participate in the pagan practices of communing with pagan deities? Are you you out of your mind? I guess I am. And I must repent if I'm a Corinthian in the first century because he's gonna prove his point in just a moment. Now, essentially, they realize that these deities are nothing, and that's the irony. They're still in there participating. So to participate in pagan feasting is not only to be unfaithful to Christ, but is also to be unfaithful to the body of Christ throughout the city of Corinth. You see why we do church discipline? You sin against Christ, you're also sinning against the body, Of Christ. Now in verse 18. Paul once again returns to redemptive history. In order to illustrate his point. Verse 18. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices. Sharers in the altar. Answer. Yes. Of course. Everything the altar signified under the old covenant, that is the mercy of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of sins, when the people of Israel joined together, that is at the sacrifice of the altar, they ate part of the sacrifice. They became part of the sacrifice. They become part of the worship together as the old covenant people of God. Do they not all partake? Yes, of course. Verse 19. What do I mean then? That a thing sac- sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But. And this is a big but. I say that the things with th- which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. And not to God. And I do not want you, church, to become sharers In demons. Okay? In other words, look, you can't go into pagan temples, eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and not be a sharer in fellowship with demons. It's impossible. Now, we already know idols are nothing, but who is propagating the false religion of idolatry in Corinth, what about the immorality attached to it going on in those temples? Who is propagating those things? Demons. Says the Apostle Paul by divine inspiration. So when you engage in that meal, says the Apostle Paul, you are associating with and participating in the demonic. Demonic. It's that simple. Just as sure as when you take the bread and the cup representing the body and blood of Christ, you participate in the body and blood of Christ. It's just as real as that. You're communing with something all right, and demons are behind it, says the Apostle Paul. In other words, Corinthians, you can't have it both ways, okay? Um, American Christians in San Diego, you can't have it both ways. You can't commune with God's people on Sunday, and then go out into the world and fellowship and commune with who knows what, with people in places that are full of darkness, and just think it's okay. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and and the cup of demons. You, You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. This is the heart of his argument. You can't do both because those two things are absolutely mutually exclusive, which kills by the way, beloved, which destroys by the way, beloved, any idea of syncretism. Okay, you're a Christian, You confess, you profess faith in Jesus Christ alone. Should you as a Christian then go into the Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall and participate in worship there? Should you go into a Mormon temple and participate in worship there? I mean, after all, they confess the name of Jesus. No. Of course not. Because behind all false religions, Jehovah's Witness is a false religion. Mormonism is a false religion. Behind all false religions, just like all heathen idolatry is demonic activity. Do You think Joseph Smith just came up with the idea of Mormonism on his own? Do you? No. But Satan, who masquerades as an angel of light, Very religious, he masquerades as a very religious one. So behind all false religions is demonic deceit. Should Christians go into a a Christian science gathering and participate in worship there? No, of course not. What about becoming uh, uh, part of meetings uh, within the Unitarian Church? No, of course not, because the Unitarian Church is no church at all. The Unitarian Church teaches all roads lead to God so long as you're sincere. Well, now, what do you believe? That's divided allegiance. What about going backwards into Catholicism, which means you have to reject justification by faith alone? They teach justification by faith plus works. Now you're denying justification by faith alone and Christ alone and now you're bowing down before the host of the Roman Catholic Church, before the Eucharist. buying into transubstantiation, which teaches that the bread and the wine literally turn into the the body and blood of Christ. When the priest consecrates the elements, well, does that mean I can't go to my my cousin's wedding in a catholic church well of course not doesn't mean that we're talking about participating in forms of worship held at these places syncretism that's what they were doing with pagan deities so <clears throat> look at the warning paul to timothy 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of what? Demons. Dabbling in false religion, says the Apostle Paul, standing behind the deception is demonic activity. And mixed allegiance will arouse the Lord's jealousy and will incite him to action. Verse 22. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Now, friends, this is not jealousy as we know it, a product of fear and insecurity. But this is a jealousy for us blood-bought people. And he demands those who name the name of the Lord not to have divided devotion or we provoke him to jealousy. So if we rationalize, okay, think about this. This is an applicable point. When we rationalize superstition and we indulge in in false religion, perhaps in the name of exclusivism, perhaps in the name of tolerance in our culture and so that we might appease the politically correct spirit of the age, we are provoking the Lord to jealousy. Anybody? We can't eat at his table and at the table of another lover. Oh we'll provoke his jealousy. Notice We're not stronger than he, are we? This is an argument from absurdity. (laughs) You're not stronger than God, are you? You want to provoke him to jealousy? No, we're not stronger than he. And, And therefore, it's absolute folly to think that you can do your own thing. Corinthian Christians, San Diego Christians. It's folly to think that you can do your own thing without him acting. Remember what Job said, Job 9 verse 4. Who has defiled him without harm? Answer, no one. No one. So involvement in idolatry is to be flirting with demonic forces whether you realize it or not. Friends, Satan is a schemer. He is both real and personal. He's real. He can only be at one place at one time. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. Only God is. Okay? But Satan is a schemer. And one of his greatest ploys is to convince people that he doesn't exist. This is a genius tactic, genius. He he says, look, I will get you to show allegiance to me by getting getting you to believe I don't exist. Amazing. People buy it hook, line, and sinker because they think Satan to be some character wearing a red jumpsuit Pitchfork in hand, horns coming out of his head, little pointy toes. People say, that's nonsense. I don't believe in that. Neither do I. In order to blind people from his true existence, he reinvents himself. Like that. Presenting himself in a way that's unbelievable red jumpsuit, pitchfork. And then he masquerades as an angel of light. Jesus said to the most religious people of his day, religious leaders of apostate Judaism, Jesus (laughs) said to a group of people who would tie phylacteries to their forehead and to their hand, that is boxes with little scriptures in them, Jesus said they would broaden out the phylacteries, that they would pray on the street corner in order to be seen. They would blow a trumpet before they gave to the poor, all in order to draw attention to themselves. Jesus, on many occasions, referred to them as hypocrites who teach as doctrine the precepts of, of men. Look what he said to that group In John 8, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Do you notice that word? It says cannot. You are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. You see that? Because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. But lies of the world, precepts of men, when they're spit out, they're absorbed in the minds of the deceived, that is lies in our day of human sexuality. Lies of gender identity. You're gonna buy that, Christian? You wanna share in demons with that, Christian? Human physiology says that's ridiculous. You're born a boy, you're born a girl. I don't care what you think like being. You've heard me say this. What if your child came up to you and said, Mommy, I believe I'm an eagle. Right? Pat him on the wing, honey, whatever you want to be, go be. Well, mommy, I'm going to jump off a 20-story building and prove that I can fly so that I no longer only feel like an eagle, but I am an eagle. Okay, honey, go jump. Come on. Precepts of men. The lies of our day, that truth is relative. There are no absolutes. You want to share in that? Come on. There's the lying religion of social justice. Political correctness. It's a religion. Make no mistake about it. You want to buy into that? You want to participate in that during the week? And then come and partake of the table and God's means of grace, his word? You want to believe that truth is relative during the week and then come here and identify with the table that Jesus is the only way to the Father? Come out from among them, says the Lord. Flee. That's idolatry. You're sharing with demons. Run. One amen. Look, the significance of the communion of the table um, for which we're about to partake lies first and foremost in our being unified to Christ. If you're not unified to Christ, you have no business partaking of this table. Amen? Amen. Why so stern? Because this is such a vital truth, vital reality. Thousands and thousands of people are streaming into churches today, participating in this act, and they do not have union with God through Christ alone. They believe all roads lead to God and they're partaking of that. They believe in the precepts of men, and they're partaking of that. You have divided allegiance. You're no different than the Corinthians. Flee. This country called Christian, so to speak, needs a wake-up call in its first Corinthians. Shouldn't pastors be loving? This is loving. So lift your chin. If it's down. All they're doing is eating and drinking. That is, those who participate in the belief systems of the precepts of men and come in and partake of that, you know what they're doing? Eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. Chapter 11, verse 29. I'm wrapping up. Paul, friends, Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that loyal, loyalty to Jesus Christ is exclusive loyalty. Therefore, flee from idolatry. Do we see this? Look at Psalm 15 that we read from earlier, verses 4 through 8. When you're watching the Super Bowl for five hours today, and you think about, you think back to this morning that the service was, well, the 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 preaching was was an hour. When your back starts to hurt, rejoice that the greatest thing was only an hour. <laughs> when you have to get up and move around, man, five hours in the same chair. I'll be included, don't worry. <laughs> I don't pretend to be pious. <laughs> Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. They have noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. They have feet, but cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. You know, people... Who are Christians, who are way out in a faraway land, caught up in idolatry, they're blind to the fact that they're caught up in idolatry. Why? Because they become like their idol. You can't see it. You can't possibly recognize it. We just read John eight forty three. Why do you not understand what I am saying? Well, it's because you cannot hear my word. You know what that's a fulfillment of? The words to the prophet Isaiah, when he said, Isaiah, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. That's divine abandonment, to be turned over to your own hardness. So once again, I'll quote G.K. Beale. I happen to be reading a new book of his, so I'm really digging it. Beal says this with regard to Isaiah 6. Go and tell this people, keep on listening, and so on. Beal puts it like this. You like idols, Israel? You like them? Is that what you want? All right, you're going to become like an idol. And that's the judgment. It's ju-, he goes on to say, it's just as in eternity when God says, you didn't want to spend your life in fellowship with me and my people on this earth? All right. All right. I'll give you what you wanted on this earth for eternity. Separation from God. You didn't want to be with me and my people? You didn't love me and my people? That's what you get for eternity. You become like that which you worship. Danger. Flee. Flee. So, to wrap this up. I know I said that four minutes ago. (laughs) Application. Look, whatever dominates my mind... Whatever captivates the core of your being, if it's not the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it's a created thing, as I said earlier, it's an idol. Kill it, crush it. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A.W. Tozer said this decades ago. Quote, what we think about when we are free to think about what we will, that is what we are or will soon become. G.K. Beale similarly says, "What you revere, you resemble either for ruin or restoration." We're being conformed to the image of Christ. We mustn't abandon him and run towards idols or shared allegiance with some crazy, whacked-out belief system. So what do you do? Where does your mind go when you're alone? Things to consider. What do you think about when you're all alone? Okay, what consumes how you think? What do you imagine? Now, let me say this a single daydream doesn't prove an idol. I'd have a million of them probably, right? So we're not talking about a single daydream. But what is it that you constantly fantasize about, think about, that's, that's not Christ? It's not the Lord. Whatever it is, it's an indication of an idol that consumes me, plain and simple. So, idols are what we follow when Jesus is not enough. Jesus came to crush idols. He's the idol crusher, amen? The idol crusher. And if he indwells me, let me run to him and crush these these idols. Because Jesus came to die on the cross for all of my idolatry. He came to die for all the sins of your idolatry. That's what the table represents. The one who worshiped the Father perfectly, flawlessly, who truly loved God with all his heart, with all his soul, in all of his mind, he did it for you. And by faith we participate in his broken body and shed blood, accomplished for you. Therefore we can crush all idols by the power and strength. The pressure on the inside is greater than the pressure on the outside. Amen? He's the equalizing force who's conquered sin, conquered death, conquered all idolatry, and he ever lives to reign within us. Amen? Father, thank you for your word, the sternness of it, the the hope of it, the warnings within it, Let us rejoice as we come to the table together, having been set free from bondage. It's the freedom we have in Christ. For his name we pray. Amen.